Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel-centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit ccbcpressensburg.org. Church, we find ourselves back in John's Gospel account right before we get ready to take a summer break into the Psalms. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. And I know Seth's going to kick us off in that series, um, summer series, uh, very well. And I look forward to him bringing our first um, Psalm next Sunday. But before we dive into our text this morning, I want to remind us of just some quick truths regarding prayer. I know that many of us have, are, are living in a, in a time right now where, especially when we see events happen across the, across the globe and we read things on social media and it, uh, where there's doubt in the power of prayer, there's doubt in the purpose and the significance of prayer, I believe it's important for us as the church that we remind ourselves what the scriptures, what God himself has breathed to us through the biblical authors to remind us of what prayer is and how effective it is. So I just want to remind us just with this quick verse from 1 John. And remember, 1 John is written also by the Apostle John. So the same man who has pinned down this gospel account that we've been walking through is the same man who wrote this verse. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, it says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, brothers and sisters, I wanted to just encourage you and encourage your hearts to keep praying. And to, to keep praying according to the revealed will that we read in the scriptures. And when you read of something in your Bible, when you read of a command or you read God's disposition or will toward a specific event or to a specific thing, you can have confidence that you can go before his throne of grace in faith and pray for those same petitions and requests and supplications that we read, for example, in the Psalms. So friends, brothers and sisters, keep praying. Don't let the secular mindset, the atheistic mindset of our communities and of, 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 of those who aren't of the church confuse you and, and cause discouragement in your heart toward prayer. May we have that confidence that the Apostle John spoke of. But now as we get back to John's Gospel account, we're in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. We're going to be finishing John chapter 1. So we're coming to the conclusion of this chapter, and we'll begin John chapter 2, most likely in August, so at some point in August. But John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So if you'll take your copy of God's Word, turn there with me. Verse 35 says, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and Jesus said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that you've given us. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach this text faithfully. Father, I pray that you'd bless the ministry of your word. And Father, I also pray that you'd bless the hearing of your word. God, may, if we read of truths that we've already heard of before, God, give us the humility not to think that we don't need to hear these truths again. But Father, give us a heart of faith. May this word find good soil in our hearts that bears much fruit. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to remind us the point of John's Gospel account, church. As we've kind of walked through already this chapter, let us not forget that John's Gospel account is both evangelistic and it's apologetic. So if we go to John chapter 20, in verses 30 through 31, we're reminded of the Apostle John's purpose of pinning this Gospel account down. And I want to, I want to remind us of this for, to refresh our memory. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's whole intent here is to accumulate evidence. To accumulate as much evidence that he possibly can so that you might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing that he is the cross, you might have life in his name. So this is where we find ourselves in John chapter 35 through 51. Now having walked through verses 1 through 18, which read much more like an epistle, Pastor Seth walked us through the first portion of this text in verses 19 through 13, or 19 through 34, that read as a narrative account of the life of Jesus Christ. Now we continue this narrative account of the life of Christ in verse 35 to the end of the chapter this morning. And at the conclusion of this chapter, again, we will take a summer break in the Psalms. But as we just read in verses 19 or 35 through 51, this text largely deals with Jesus collecting his first disciples. 
in his earthly ministry. Discipleship to Jesus is the primary text or primary point of our text this morning. However, there are other foundational truths that John will alert us to, which is not uncommon for the Apostle John. Our text this morning is divided into two sections naturally. It's Jesus' calling of Andrew and Peter, and then Jesus' calling of Philip and Nathaniel to himself. But I want us to see in this portion of Scripture uh, three primary points. The first point, again, is the humility of John the Baptist. This will be a this has been a recurring theme throughout John chapter one. But after our text this morning, John the Baptist is going to kind of fade into the background as Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Where I also want us to see the three foundational truths about Jesus as an individual. And then I want us to end with four truths required for discipleship to Jesus. But before we do that, let us not miss the peculiar glory of this text at the beginning, which is that Jesus, the incarnate Word, who was in the beginning of creation with the Father, and who is God Himself, who is the light of men, that darkness has and will not overcome, who has clothed Himself with humanity in order to save the people for Himself, has chosen the most unlikely of men, to accompany him with his eternal plan of redemption. Jesus has not chosen the religious elite, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, to be his first disciples. Jesus chose true Israelites in whom there is no deceit. That is, true Jews who understood the Old Testament, especially Isaiah 53, and their need for a Savior. Real believers who found their righteousness not in what they did, but by faith in the coming Messiah. These first followers of Jesus, seven Galilean fishermen, John, James, and Thomas were also among this first group as well with Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip. These men would go on to give their testimony of the divine identity of Jesus. They would go on to become apostles of Christ and the first great missionaries and preachers of the gospel in which the church would be founded upon. Starting that mission which is still being carried out. The mission of making disciples of Jesus that began in Jerusalem and is continuing to take place even in Prestonsburg, Kentucky this morning and will be finished upon Jesus' return. The Apostle John reminds us of the paradox of service to Jesus and His kingdom. The one who is perfect and strong calls to himself those who will fail him, struggle with sin, and often possess weak faith. It is the lowly fishermen who become fishers of men. And does this not remind us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul tells us in verses 26 through 31 this? He says, For consider your calling, brothers, brothers and sisters in this context. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and, and despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
Is that not a text that just screams the sovereignty of God and salvation? By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, the only boast that you and I have here this morning is in Christ Jesus. We don't have a boast in our standing and our justification saying that I'm, I know that I'm saved because of my church attendance. I know that I'm saved because I've read my Bible day in and day out for the last 15 years. No, friends, the only boast that we have is in Christ Jesus. The Father choosing us before the foundation of the world through the finished work of the Son, being applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our boast. That's our boast. And this, peculiar, this is the peculiar glory of discipleship to Jesus. That those who follow Jesus are not worthy to follow Jesus. And those who will fail Jesus are those who fulfill the plan of redemption and bring about the, the, the end result that Christ purchased in His life, death, and resurrection. That God in His wise providence has chosen to bring about the fulfillment of His will and the proclamation of the grace of God through weak vessels like us. These seven Galilean fishermen were not wise according to the world standards. They were not considered noble or strong. They were not wealthy or, or possessed great fame. They simply knew they needed a Savior and God had chosen them for the foundation of the world as He has chosen us who, who look to Christ in faith today to be jars of clay that contain great treasure. Treasure that is not prized by the world. Treasure far greater than any earthly riches. This treasure that has been entrusted to Jesus' disciples is the news of how God has saved a remnant of people through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. By grace through faith. So, you may have wondered this question before. Why has God called you to Himself in salvation? Why has God called you to discipleship to Jesus Christ? It is so that you would become a trophy of God's marvelous grace through the power of the Gospel, the redemption of your soul, and the transformation of your life. We boast not in what we could offer Jesus and His kingdom, for no one has become a disciple of Jesus because they were worthy or offered God something that He did not already have. No, our boast is in that what God has given us in the person of Christ, which is mercy, grace, and forgiveness. I want us to turn to our first point in this text. And that again is this recurring motif or theme of the humility of John the Baptist. Look again in verses 35 through 37 with me. It says, The next day, so after everything that, that Seth walked us through in our in last Sunday in our previous text regarding the humility of John the Baptist, we see this again. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. His disciples. And he, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold! That is to say that John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, Stop looking at me. Here's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Beloved, what this is instructing us is that the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry is not that he would continue to gain a greater following in his ministry, but the fulfillment of the Baptist ministry is to see his own disciples, his own, fo his own fo followers, abandon him to follow Jesus. 
to follow Jesus. And there is no doubt that John the Baptist explained to his followers uh, more than just behold the Lamb of God. We see that this is kind of a recurring theme. Uh, it could almost look like John the Baptist was a, a one-sermon man. The only thing he knew how to preach was behold the Lamb of God. And, <laughs> beloved, that's a, that's a pretty good sermon too. It's probably better than half the ones I've ever preached. But there's no doubt that John the Baptist taught his disciples more than that. There's no doubt in my mind that John the Baptist took his disciples to Isaiah 53 and showed them why they needed a Savior. A Savior, a lasting sacrifice for their sins. A sacrifice who would be pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Thus, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, John becomes a man with one message. Behold the Lamb of God as he looks unto Jesus who would soon atone for the sins of his people. So, again, I've said this at Lakeville before as I've preached John 129. And I'll say this now as we come to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 37. I pray that the ministry of the elders at CCBC, that is, as of this point in time, Seth and I, that we would be marked with the same kind of humility displayed in John the Baptist. Of course, humility is a Christian virtue. It's a chief virtue of the Christian faith. And we should all be marked with humility. But specifically those who are under shepherds to the chief shepherd. That those who sit under our ministry of the Word would not look to us, Seth and I, as the standard for truth or the givers of spiritual life. But that they would look to the One whom we proclaim, Jesus. And that this church, that it seeks to exalt one name. And then that name is not Alex. That name is not Seth. But that name is Jesus. For that is the only name given among men by, what, by which we must be saved. I want us to look now at three foundational truths about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is sovereign over our lives. Here at this church, the word sovereign is no unfamiliar term. And it's because we see it in texts all over Scripture. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I remembered most when I became to behold the doctrines of grace uh, as a younger man uh, I went from an individual who refused to see the sovereignty of God in anything to once by God's grace understanding that these doctrines are rooted in Scripture to now I see the sovereignty of God in everything. And first we see it here in verses 41 through 42. Take your eyes back to the text. Jesus is sovereign over all lives. Verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now up to this point, Peter had been known as Simon, the son of Jonah. And Jonah means, in Aramaic, it means John. But upon meeting Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus looked at him. Now this look was a look with the very eye of God. A look that not only knew the heart of Simon personally, but a look at Simon that knew what Jesus would make him become. Jesus declares to Simon, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The term Cephas in Aramaic, which Aramaic was the language of Jesus, means rock, which is translated as Peter in Greek. 
So Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter or Cephas before Jesus began his earthly ministry. This means that hidden within this text is a beacon of divine light pointing to Jesus Christ. Because Simon's name change is not only predictive of what Peter would be called in Matthew 16, but also declarative of how Jesus would transform Peter's character and use him in relation to the foundation of the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Who do you say I am? Simon replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter in verses 17 through 18, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter and the other apostles are the rock or living stones as Peter says of himself in chapter 2, whose eyewitness testimony of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, will become the chief belief within the church concerning Jesus, the foundational belief concerning Jesus. Thus, whatever is taking place at Peter's first encounter with Jesus is this Jesus sovereignly declaring the destiny of Peter and how God will use him for his glory and the good of the church. Even if Peter did not realize the significance of his name change from Simon to Cephas, Peter understood that that's what it meant in Matthew 16. This progressive understanding of what Christ has declared to him the moment that Jesus encountered Simon. And friends, no matter what you have done, just like Peter, no matter what you have done, when you encounter Jesus in faith, everything changes. Jesus is not only sovereign over our coming to faith in Him, but He is also sovereign over how He will use us to exalt His name among our community. And you may be wondering how Jesus is going to use your life for His glory. Well, brother or sister, within this church are a multitude of ways in which you can serve the body of Christ. You have unique gifts and talents that can be put to use that I don't have, that Seth doesn't have. Whether it's setting up chairs for a soul to hear the gospel, serving in our kids' Sunday school class, helping with technology, you name it. The church needs every member of his body to do its part. And maybe you're called to be a missionary in a foreign land or called to pastoral ministry. Praise the Lord. But if not, do not underestimate. Hear me out on this church. Do not underestimate the normal every week activities in the life of this local church that require faithful attending to. Again, you might not be called to Africa to preach the gospel. You not, might not be called to pastoral ministry. You might not be called to build your own ministry and, and, and be on a large platform. But if you can faithfully serve Christ in the local church, there's nothing, there's nothing greater than that. I call that normal, faithful plotting. Plotting in the life of every Christian that largely doesn't get noticed by anyone else. But you know who does watch? You know who does notice? That, that faithful day in and day out work? Christ. Christ does. Peter had a role to play in the church. And so do you. Secondly, I want us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
Take your eyes back to verse 45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Have you ever started to read a book within the first two chapters you lose interest because you still don't understand the thesis of the book? You have not captured the primary point of the book? Well, many people fail to make it out of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, because they fail to see the point of those books. They fail to see the meaning of those books. They fail to see how all of it relates to the person of Jesus. It's important that we understand the progressive nature of Revelation that we see throughout the Old Testament that leads us to the incarnate Word in the New Testament. In other words, we can say that what is promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. And what is fulfilled in the New Testament is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ. And the New Testament is the realization of Christ. The whole Bible is Christ-centered. Jesus, Jesus is not just in the Gospel accounts. Jesus is in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39 to the Pharisees, who thought that they were righteous before God because of their knowledge of the Old Testament, He says this to them, You search the Scriptures because you think, you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Jews knew that the Old Testament, the Jews knew what the Old Testament said, but they failed to see who the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus the Messiah. You see, there are either tops, shadows, imagery, promise fulfillment, foreshadowing, and redemptive historical progression of the gospel of Jesus Christ on every page of Scripture in the Old Testament. Just to name a few, in the Old Testament, we see Adam as the representative of humanity who failed to obey God. We read that this morning in our catechism questions and in Romans chapter 5. But Christ is the last Adam who triumphed as the representative of a new humanity, the church in him. In Genesis 3, there is the first sight of the gospel and the promise of the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Christ is that offspring, per Galatians 3, who crushes Satan's power and works through Jesus' death on the cross. In the Old Testament, there were prophets who spoke of God's message to God's people. But in the New Testament, we see Christ as the true prophet teacher who perfectly represents God to mankind. In the Old Testament, we see that there were priests who would offer continual sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of God's people that, they would, that, that was offered up annually for only temporary appeasement from God. But in Christ, we see the great high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice in himself for the sins of his people, justifying us before God. In the Old Testament, we, we see kings who would rule and govern God's people, but they failed. And led Israel to sin. But in Christ we see the true king of Israel. Who reigns in continual righteousness. Always making intercession for us. Who has defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death. In the Old Testament we see the law of God given through Moses. That reveals to us our need in sin. And our need of a savior. Who is revealed as Jesus the righteous one. The very same law Jesus would obey on our behalf. 
And in the Old Testament, we see God's, pe God's people build tabernacles and temples so that God can dwell with man. But in Christ, we see God tabernacled among man, becoming like humanity yet without sin in order to save humanity from their sin in the person of Jesus. So friends, the Bible is all about Jesus. And as you read your Bibles, do not get lost at looking at the trees that you miss the beauty of the forest. And this is the reason why Seth and I are so passionate that when someone does become a member at Cross Community Baptist Church, that we give them materials and resources that can help them see Christ in all Scripture. And this is why we've given the Gospel Transformation Study Bible by Crossway, because it's designed for that very purpose. How do you see Christ on every page of Scripture? And it's also the reason why we preach the way that we do here at CCBC, so that we won't miss glimpses of Christ where surely we're, when we're in the New Testament, but definitely when we're in the Old Testament, when it's so easy to miss Christ in the Old Testament. This Friday, I was uh, at Dairy Cheer with Annabeth, and we were, uh, I, I saw a friend of mine um, from Little Paint Church of God, and he asked me, he said, Alex, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, uh, John chapter 1, 35 through 51. And he kind of looked at me funny because he was kind of expecting like me to say like a, like a series or something like that. And he said, you know what, man? He said, I love it when people walk through texts like that. He said, I love it when you're eating. I didn't say this to him. He said, it helps me understand the Bible. It helps me understand how, I can, how do I read the Bible on my own. And I said, that's the exact reason why we do it here. And, and that's why we're doing it here so that not only can you can become better Bible readers on your own, but so that we don't miss Christ in the text. Now, Jesus, that is our ultimate goal in Bible reading, to see Jesus in faith and to be conformed more into his image. And may we also be people who can join Philip in this text and say, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. That's our goal, and that's the goal of every Christian, that we can join Philip in saying that, that we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. The last foundational truth regarding Christ that I want us to see, friends, in this text is that Jesus' signs and miracles have a purpose. Jesus' signs and miracles have a purpose. Take your eyes to verses 50 through 51 in our text. It says, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, after Philip tells Nathaniel that they have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote about, Nathaniel responds with skepticism. What does Nathaniel say? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, you see, Nathaniel was from Cana. We read that in John chapter 21, another town in Galilee. And while Galileans were despised by Judeans, Galileans themselves despised the people of Nazareth. Nazareth was known as an insignificant village, home to no more than 2,000 people. And doesn't this too exalt God's humility and, and the display of Christ's glory in the incarnation that he didn't come to Jerusalem? That Jesus wasn't from Jerusalem, but he chose to come as a man from Bethlehem and live in Nazareth, an insignificant place. Even the location of Jesus' residence reminds us 
that those who follow Jesus must be characterized by humility. However, Nathaniel's skepticism regarding Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah quickly dissipates as he encounters Jesus himself. Jesus calls Nathaniel an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That is to say, a true Jew who believed in the coming Messiah. A true student of John the Baptist. But Nathaniel is puzzled at how Jesus knows him. After all, this is their first encounter. Jesus answers very clearly. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Nathaniel's response of astonishment implies to us that Jesus possessing this knowledge is a testimony to his deity. As Nathaniel is convinced that no one knew he was under the fig tree earlier in the day except Nathaniel himself. But Jesus knew because Jesus is God and possesses supernatural knowledge in his divine nature. And Nathaniel sees this about Jesus as revealed in his response to Jesus. What does Nathaniel say? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, as we've said before, the phrase rabbi wasn't a messianic title for Jesus only. It was a title of respect that the Jews would give to anyone they deemed as a respectable teacher, specifically, definitely, of the law. But the titles of Son of God... The titles of King of Israel are filled with Old Testament imagery pointing to the Messiah. But Jesus responds to Nathaniel's faith in an interesting way, doesn't he? I mean, after, after hearing an individual declare rightly who Jesus is, you would think that Jesus would say something like he said to Peter after Peter's confession of who Christ was. Peter... What you've just said hasn't come from yourself. It's come from the Father who's revealed that to you. Well done. Upon that confession, that, that is the rock. That confession is the rock on which the church will be built. It's not what Jesus says to Nathaniel here. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You see, friends, the purpose of signs and miracles in the New Testament, whether by Jesus or the apostles in the book of Acts, they are providentially granted by God to accomplish one thing. That is to testify to the divine identity of Jesus. Now throughout John's Gospel account, and especially in chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus will perform many miracles. And these miracles are not performed to wow us. They, they are not performed just because Jesus felt like it. These miracles have a specific purpose. And that purpose is to point to Jesus' divine identity as the Son of God, as the true King of Israel. Now, the church has been confused on this point of the purpose of signs and miracles to this day. I was talking to an individual this, this week again who showed me a video that I was ignorant of prior to this conversation. And she, she claimed to me it was a pastor within this region. I, I have no idea where. But the pastor was preaching a funeral. And at the conclusion of the funeral, they open the casket. And they start demanding that God raise this individual from the dead. Like Jesus with Lazarus. And friends, this is just yet a, a small illustration of so much confusion with so many, uh, around the church today. That we read of miracles in the New Testament. And we say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I can do these things too. Friends, that's, that's not a good hermeneutic. 
Because we're not crossed and we're not the apostles who have an apostolic ministry specific only to them. The purpose of every miracle and sign that we see in Scripture is not an invitation for us to do them ourselves in our own life. But it's an invitation for us to look at the miracle and to say, this is a divine event that can't be accomplished by human means, natural means. Thus, let us take our eyes not to the, the, the event itself, but to the, to the miracle worker, to Christ. Let our eyes not be so focused on Lazarus as an example, coming back from the dead in John chapter 11. Let our eyes go to the one who raised John from the dead, which is Christ. So Jesus tells Nathaniel, in essence, that he has not seen anything yet. You will see greater things than these. Like what, Jesus? Will you solve all my life's problems? Will you grant me physical prosperity? Will you bless my finances? No, something far greater. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is recalling here the story of Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 12, where Jacob dreamed about a ladder coming from heaven. Jesus' point here is that the ladder in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 is a top of Christ. The ladder symbolically points to Jesus and means that mankind does not climb up to God, but God in Christ has come down to us. Remember, friends, that this illustration, this recollection of Genesis 28 is not by accident. The whole point of every miracle and sign that we read in the New Testament, we see in Scripture, is to take our eyes off ourselves, off our circumstances, and on the cross. I lastly want us to see four truths required for discipleship to Jesus in this text. Four truths required for discipleship to Jesus. And it, I won't be through the I won't be in this this long. But the first is that discipleship to Jesus requires a desire to learn. Now on this point I know that I'm going to step on some toes and it's not me. Um, I'll let scripture do that. But here in John chapter 1 verses 35 through 51 these Galilean fishermen were just everyday guys. They worked for a living, went home, got up to work again the next day. But they were not an anti-intellectual. They did not believe that Jesus, they did not believe that just because they were fishermen, rather than rabbis, that they had an excuse to be intellectually lazy. No, here in this text, these first disciples were given a first-class course in Christology. In a span of 16 verses, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. All messianic names that take on fuller meaning throughout John's Gospel account. Now, what I see too often in the church, especially among men, I encounter an attitude of, I don't read my Bible because I struggle to read, or I simply don't like reading. Yet we have no problem reading 500 Facebooks, Facebook posts today. We have no problem reading our text messages or our email. When it comes down to it, what it comes down to is a desire to remain intellectually ignorant concerning the things of Jesus. And we could say, Alex, these were seven Galilean fishermen. These were, these were uneducated men. They were also disciples of John the Baptist. There were also individuals who wanted to learn of this coming Messiah. 
Beloved, I love you too much to let you become ignorant concerning Jesus. When we are so incredibly blessed in the English language to have a Bible translation on a fourth grade reading level. We have audio Bibles. We have Bible apps. It has never been easier in the history of mankind to immerse yourselves in Scripture as it is today. Yet we still find excuses because we ultimately don't care to become a student of Jesus. We would rather be a student of our favorite athletic coach or our favorite athletic team. We would rather be a student of our political individuals that we look up to. Tucker Carlson or whoever you watch on CNN or whatever you watch. We, we, we want to become students of these individuals. But especially for professed Christians, we struggle to find desire to become disciples of Jesus. But friends, if you are not chiefly a student of Jesus, then do not expect anyone else but Christ to be a suitable Savior for your soul. Now, what I'm saying is not that you can't be a sports fan. What I'm saying is not that you can't follow politics. What I'm saying not is that you can't follow influential people in our culture today. But I'm saying that we should, those who call themselves Christians, should chiefly submit themselves to the tutelage and discipleship, and that we should chiefly be students to Christ and to no one else. We all become a disciple of something or someone. We all learn about what we, what we care about. And if we want to follow Jesus, we must learn of Jesus. And where we learn of Jesus is by opening the book in our daily lives and gathering every week as those who, whom God has redeemed to hear, to read, and to sing Scripture. And may CCBC have a culture where we prize intellectualism. For the Bible prizes intellectualism. Think back on the great commandment. What has the Lord told us is the greatest commandment in all the law. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It seems like in today's culture, we struggle to love God with our minds. We struggle to open the book. We struggle to sit through a sermon that only lasts for an hour, if I'm long-winded. But we have no issue sitting still for a movie that lasts two and a half hours. We have no issue sitting through a, what I like to go through, professional football game that lasts three hours. But sitting under the, the Word of God, sitting under the ministry of the Word, I can only give that 20 minutes. That seems to be the, 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 the cultural atmosphere within the church. And beloved, may that not be true of, of us here at CCBC. May we love the Lord with our mind. May we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. If we do not prize intellectual thinking and we become a people who talk great things yet our Bibles are always closed, then not only will we be stunted in our sanctification, but our children will grow up viewing Christianity as a blind faith and intellectual suicide. May it not be so among us. May we create an atmosphere and a culture here at church and in our homes where, speaking for myself, where Ben and Annabeth grow up and they don't see parents who just profess great things about Jesus, but they see parents with Bibles open. That's going to be a far greater testimony than anything that we ever say. Secondly, I want you to see that discipleship to Jesus requires asking what we really want in life. In verse 38, Jesus sees Andrew and Peter following him, and he asks, what are you seeking? Don Carson on this says, The Apostle John wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question. 
The Logos Messiah confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. That's the question that I have for us this morning. What do you really want in life? This is the question we must ask. Is it fame? Is it physical prosperity? Is it self-glory? You can have all these things in the world, but you can't have those things and follow Jesus too. Do you believe in Jesus because you think He is a prosperous lottery ticket who will give you that new car, new job, or big bonus if you just believe in Him? Do you believe in Jesus because you think He's a genie in a bottle willing to grant every request that you make in prayer? Jesus asks all of us in this text today, what are you seeking? And if we are seeking anything less than a merciful Savior in whom we can find rest for our souls, then we do not know Christ. And the irony of discipleship is this, friends, that in order to live spiritually, you must die. In order to live a life of true joy, contentment, and peace, you must die to yourself, your pride, your glory, your platform, your following, and live to build Christ's kingdom rather than your own. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23-25. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, not only is this text the text that converted me as a freshman or as a freshman in college when I was 19, realizing that I had claimed to follow Christ, but it was that word daily that convicted me to the core, realizing my hypocrisy. I followed Jesus pretty well on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday I was living for myself. But when we see that the, the, the peculiar glory of discipleship to Jesus is that if you want to live for Him, if you want to grow in Him, if you want to have true joy and contentment and pleasure, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself. So, beloved, what do you really want in life? And I pray for everyone who attends Cross Community Baptist Church, especially our membership, that our greatest desire in life would not be fame, would not be riches, would not be a great retirement or, live, or leaving behind a prosperous amount of, of riches for our children. But I pray that our greatest thing that we desire in life would be to know Christ and Him crucified and for that to be the legacy of our children. Thirdly, discipleship to Jesus requires a spiritual concern for others. You've probably heard it said, disciples make disciples. This is a biblically true statement. For when Jesus gave His commission before His ascension, it was, a, it was not a charge given to apostles or preachers only. Those men who were first and foremost disciples of Christ Himself. These first disciples were charged to make other disciples who would then go and make disciples. It is evangelism by multiplication. And it is how the Gospel goes from one corner of the world to the other. Disciples of Jesus are people who not only care about the felt needs of their neighbors, but more importantly, they care about the spiritual needs of their neighbors. They understand that to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, or to house the homeless without also sharing the gospel is only to make one's life more comfortable on the way to hell. We must display the gospel, but we must also remember that faith only comes by hearing. 
Thus we declare the gospel, having not only a concern for people's physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. And in verses 41 and 45, we see this method of evangelism from the very beginning. Take your eyes back to verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Verse 42. Verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. After meeting Jesus, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. And Philip tells Nathaniel, we have found Jesus. We have found the Messiah. And what we are seeing here is the most common and effective means of evangelism. You do not have to know every answer to every Bible question to share Jesus. You do not have to go to seminary or be a, a pastor of a church. The most common and effective way of evangelism, the life of the church, is the personal testimony of coming to know Christ in your own life. To your friend, to your brother or sister, or to a co-worker. You simply, you simply proclaim to those who need to know the Messiah that you have found Him in the person of Jesus. And upon finding Him, you show them how they can find Him too by grace through faith. And whether it is handing out a gospel tract, having a gospel conversation over coffee, or inviting someone to church, we each have a responsibility to bring spiritually hungry people to the table where Christ is the feast. My greatest fear is not speaking in public. My greatest fear is not pots. My greatest fear is not snakes, even though I'm terrified of snakes. My greatest fear is dying in Christ, going to be with Christ for all eternity, and then realizing at that point, once I, my eyes finally see Jesus, once my faith becomes sight, and I realize how, that this is far better than anything I could ever imagine, that I have... And I know we're not going to have sin in heaven. We're not going to have regrets. But then I would think back on my life and say, why did I not do more to help others experience what I'm experiencing now? Why did I not do everything that I possibly can to bring as many people to this place with me? And friends, I, the point of application here is very simpler, simple. Who is your one? Every single one of us at Christ Community Baptist Church ought to have one person that we're, that we're praying for daily to be saved. That we're, that we're seeking opportunities to share the gospel with them. It can become daunting when you think about all the individuals that you know who need Christ. But if you can target that down to one person to, to, to pray for, to labor with, uh, in evangelistic means where you're inviting them to church, where you're handing them a gospel tract, when you're having a gospel conversation with them, find your one church. And that's my challenge for us this week. That you would find one person and you would target them with ruthless intensity and prayerful effort that, that, that God might bring them to faith in His Son. Lastly, I want us to see that discipleship to Jesus requires humility. Notice the change of attitude and response from Nathaniel in verses 46 to verse 49. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And literally, moments later, Nathanael answers Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Nathaniel would have never come to faith in Christ if he had not humbled himself to consider the claims made about this man, Jesus from Nazareth. And the odds are likely that there are some in this gathering now or watching online that still have not come to faith in Christ because they remain stuck in skepticism and doubt. You have a long list of questions about Jesus that demand a response. And even if those questions were answered, you would still remain in doubt. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever doubted your doubt about Jesus? Have you ever doubted your doubt about Jesus? You see, too often I find individuals who have doubts concerning the claims of Scripture. But what they almost never doubt is why they have those doubts. If we could question our skepticism as much as we question what we are skeptical of, we would likely find answers and clarify what we see. As we've already said, Nathaniel and these early disciples were true believers in Yahweh. But when they began to follow Jesus, this journey started with them following Him physically only and not in faith. These seven Galilean fishermen have become Jesus' students. They had to learn from Him and study His claims and works. And ultimately, it led to their faith, to, to, to their faith in Christ Himself as the Messiah. But without an open mind, without Nathaniel humbling himself, he would, have never followed, he would have never followed Philip to encounter Jesus. He would have never gone from saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth, to saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So if you find yourself in skepticism today, humble yourself. Doubt your doubts. And follow Jesus long enough to learn from Him. Keep coming to church. Keep reading your Bible. Keep asking questions in sincerity. And you never know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your skepticism may just turn into faith where you find yourself looking to Christ with the eyes of faith and saying, you are the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this text. Father, we thank You for the truths contained in it. Father, I thank You that You have revealed to us not only foundational truths about the, the person of Christ, that He's sovereign over our lives, that Jesus not only forgives us of our sins, but Jesus is sovereign and over our destiny. He's sovereign over how He'll use us, not just how He'll forgive us. Father, we thank You that every miracle and sign that we read in Scripture that it has, a, that it has purpose. That's ultimately to give us faith in Christ. Father, we thank You that all of Scripture is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, Testifies to one person and one person only. Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And Father, we thank You that these truths that we've learned, that these requirements for discipleship to Jesus, self-denial, dying to ourselves, humility, open, open, having an open mind. Father, may You grant us these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to continue to follow Jesus faithfully. To follow Him daily as He said of Himself in Luke chapter 9. To take up our cross daily and follow Christ. And may we find our ultimate joy, pleasure, and contentment in doing that. Rather than the things of the world. Father, we ask You these things in Christ's name. Amen.